Well, as Roy said, we continue this evening in this series of the good, the bad, and the very beautiful. <laughs> Next week it will be the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, the good, the bad, and the unlikely, I believe, is the, t- is the title. Is that right? For this particular series. So tonight... Um, We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 4 and 5, which if you want to have your Bibles open from page 245, you'll find the stories. But basically, tonight what I'm going to do is tell you the story. So if you're sitting comfortably, as comfortably as you can on planks of wood, if you're sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. A long time ago, Probably about the year 1200 BC. That's 3,200 years ago, give or take a month or two. There was a woman sitting under a palm tree in a city, in a country that we today know as Israel. It was a village really rather than a city I suppose, somewhere between Ramah and Bethel. Now, I brought a map along with me here. Just so that you can see, there's Bethel. Now there's Jerusalem, that place you're probably familiar with. And there's Galilee, and there's the Dead Sea. And there's Bethel, and Ramah's not that far from it. And if you were here last week, you maybe heard a wee bit about those in the Ehud story. And that's where this woman sat under a tree. Well, what's so unusual about a woman sitting under a tree? Well, I'll tell you what's unusual. She should have been out working in the fields. Because that's what the women were supposed to do. They were supposed to be the ones working and it was the men who sat under the trees and talked all day. They chewed over politics and they chewed over deep thoughts and thought more deep thoughts. And they transacted business and they made decisions. And the women worked in the fields and in the houses like many cultures do today. Go to parts of Africa or Nepal, it's the same, or Stranmilis, it's the same. <laughs> and here's this woman, Deborah is her name, and she's sitting under a tree. She was really quite an unusual woman, because she was a prophetess. She probably had visions, she had messages from God, and she was able to speak these into people's lives. And actually she was more than a prophetess, she was the main political leader in the country. She was the kind of Maggie Thatcher of 3,200 BC, or 1,200 BC, 3,200 years ago. The kind of Angela Merkel of Israel. And she also served like the judge in the high court. So if you had a dispute or you needed advice, you'd come along to the palm tree, you'd ask for Deborah, and Deborah would sort you out. Deborah was your man, so to speak. Now, some of you who were here last week heard the story of Ehud, the left-handed assassin, the gory one about the dagger that he stuck into Eglon's rather large tummy. Ehud had been able to deliver the Israelites from the oppression of the Moabites, who were a pretty powerful bunch. Let me show you another map. There's another map. Now, there's back to Bethel, and there's Moab. And these people from Moab, they really had most of the rest of this place under the thumb And that's why Ehud was raised up by God to come and help his people who had been put under this pressure because of their disobedience and to help free them. And Israel had been free and free to settle in the land because of Ehud for about 80 years. 
But things started to go bad again, because once Ehud and his successor Shamgar were gone, Israel again became apostate. It began, again began to wander away from God, to take in other gods. And now, because of that, there's a new oppressor. God has given them over to somebody else. This time it's somebody more local, one of their kind of local kings. There were probably lots of kings around at that time, probably a bit like the way Ireland used to be. You know, the way it had lots of kings and leaders and all that kind of stuff. But now they're under the power of someone rather more local, someone from up around here. And it's really this whole area that's in deep deep trouble and the king of that area Canaanite king who's now in control is a kind of techie person we have techie people today people who text all the time and have all the latest gadgets and all the latest computer stuff well he was a kind of techie person this king we don't really know very much about him but we do know that he invested in the latest industry he was a leader in the field obviously wasn't information technology But it was iron. He was a leader in the iron industry. Because, you see, around that period of time, we're just on the cusp of the transition between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And bronze, which was easier to extract from ore, was giving way to iron, which was more difficult to extract. It was a more technical thing to do, but obviously much stronger. And so this local king called Jabin was a very smart investor. And he could see that the future was in iron. And his military commander, Sisera, was now the proud possessor of 900 iron chariots. Now, years earlier, as it happens, Joshua happened to kill a king by the same name as this one. So it's probably that this is one of the successors of the Jabin that Joshua killed many years ago. So there's been some pretty bad blood between the Jabin family and the Israelites. And now that he has invested in iron, he has the upper hand because he has the chariots. And comparing him to Israel would probably be a bit like comparing a march past of China's military. Have you ever seen that on TV? Hours and hours and hours of hundreds of thousands of people and tanks and missiles. It's probably comparing that to a sail past of the Irish Navy. That's probably about the difference that we have at this particular time. And Jabin seems to have given Sisera, who's his military commander, a free hand in the area. And he has completely oppressed the Israelites. And he comes from this town up here. That's where Sisera comes from. That little village, Harosheth Hagoyim. On the edge of Carmel. He was a big bully. With a lot of firepower. People kept off the main roads. Because they were afraid to run into one of his roadblocks. They used the back roads all the time. Village life had virtually ceased. There were no celebrations anymore. No shows of prosperity. Because everybody knew if you had a celebration or a show of prosperity, Sisera or his men would be right in on top of you to take whatever it was you had and were pleased about. In fact, the nation of Israel had really been disarmed. They hadn't a spear or a shield between them hardly as a consequence of Sisera's power. But now, after a period of time, the people have been calling on God for help. 
And it seems like God, somehow or other, we don't quite know how, communicated to Deborah that now it was time to sort out the bully and bring an end to the oppression. So Deborah sent for a man called Barak. Now, many years ago, when I was young, and I would have heard these stories for the first time, I would have thought that the name Barak was one of the strangest names I would ever have heard in my life. And now it's so terribly common. So he sent for Barak, who lived away up north in Kadesh, way up there. And Deborah is down here. So God told Deborah to send for Barak, and to invite him to come down for a little chat. So living way up there, he would know all about oppression because to get anywhere he had to come down past Sisera's home place and he was in control of that whole area. And nobody passed without his permission. Now we don't know much about Barak, but one of the things I was reading said that his name means thunderbolt. Never thought of the American president as a thunderbolt, but there you go. So thunderbolt comes from Kadesh down to Bethel to see Deborah. It must have taken quite a few days to make that journey. And the Bible says, Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun. Now let's just look at the previous map again. There's Zebulun, there's Naphtali. So it's those people, because there where my dot is, is where Sisera's hometown is. And this is the area that he's in control of. So she says, get 10,000 men from up here who know all about the oppression. And lead the way to Mount Tabor. There's Mount Tabor, okay? Within their own territory. She goes on to say, I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now, this is the same area. There's a, the big area we were looking at. And this is Mount Carmel. This is where Sisera's town would be. And the boys are from around this region, Zebulun, Naphtali. And this is the Kishon River. Okay? And you can see this lovely, lovely, great big valley. So what Deborah says is, I will lure him and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now, Barak might have been known as Thunderbolt, but there wasn't much thunder from him at this particular time, because he wasn't prepared to go without Deborah. My understanding of what's going on here is, he's listening carefully to Deborah, he knows she's a very important person, but basically he says to her, you're sitting here under the palm tree, it's my neck you're putting on the line, and everybody else's, so if you're sure that this is from God, you're convinced about this, you're coming with me. And Deborah is happy to do so. In fact, in a sense, she already said she was going to, because she was going to lure Sisera out for the fight. So, as a consequence of his certain hesitation on the task, Thunderbolt wasn't going to get the glory. The glory, the victory, 
was going to go to a woman and he probably thought it was going to be going to Deborah. But anyway, more power to him. He goes and he goes with Deborah and he raises an army. And I suspect he must have been a very, very, very nervous man. Now, I should point out to you, because this is a slightly complicated story, that there was this man called Heber, an unusual name, I know, and he was a Kenite. Now, not like our Kenite. Our Kenite's really more of a Smithite than a Kenite. But he was a Kenite. And he and the rest of his clan lived away down south in the Negev. Now, if we just go back, they lived away down here somewhere, okay? But this particular guy, Heber, he has relocated his family right up to, um, whoops, I'll go back one more, right up to this area, to Kadesh, where uh, Barak comes from. Now, why you need to know about him is, because he's a Kenite, it means he's a descendant of Moses' father-in-law. Do you know how Moses, when he was in the desert, he took a wife, and she wasn't an Israelite, obviously, and his father-in-law was called Jethro. Well, Jethro's descendants were these Kenites, and they sort of latched on to Israel, and they traveled with them, and they sort of settled with them as well. So he wasn't an Israelite, but he was kind of related to them. And what's more interesting is the Kenites were famous because they were metal workers. They were specialists in working with silver and bronze. And what seems to have happened here is that Heber knows that there's an opportunity up north with Jabin, who's into iron. And he's decided to relocate up to the north because he's a bit of a businessman, I suspect. And he knows there's the chance of a very good contract with Jabin with this new stuff called iron. And he takes all his skills as someone who was trained in working with silver and bronze and he goes up north. And I suspect that he was the man who helped make all the chariots. So it complicates the story a little bit because along with all these Israelites up there who are oppressed, there's this guy who's not quite a relative, but he's linked with the Israelites, but he's working for the enemy. And I suspect the Israelites up there, like Barak and all the others, probably thought of him as a bit of a Lundy. But we'll come back to him. Well, in fact, we'll come back to his wife in a minute or two. So Barak gets his army together all 10,000 of them, and Deborah puts the word out. Now, this is completely unfounded. You won't find this in the Bible, but here's my guess. My guess is that Deborah went and had a word with Heber and said to him, listen boy, things are going to change around here. And that Heber probably was the one who went to Sisera and said, listen Sisera, because Sisera thinks he's a good friend, because he's made all Sisera's chariots, and said to Sisera, listen, they're raising an army here, there's going to be trouble Whatever. Sisera gets all his chariots together and he rolls out of town across the valley towards Mount Tabor. Now, you can just imagine this huge valley, perfect for chariots. See, this kind of area here or this kind of area here, chariots were absolutely useless. Completely useless. You can't drive chariots and horses up mountainsides. It just doesn't work. You need the flat plain. It's like tanks 
Tanks are great in big flat plains like the wars in the deserts and all the rest of it. They're not so good in mountains because they're not really designed for that kind of thing. So that's why Sisera controls everything. That's why he has so much power. Because there's this huge valley. Nobody can get past without him. Any army that comes into the valley, nobody can match his 900 chariots. So he takes the word, rolls out his chariots up to the river and probably parks them about there and thinks, we'll wait. We'll sit them out. Because if they're all gathering up here in Mount Tabor, if they want to fight, they have to come. And if I can get them to come to me, we'll just run right over the top of them, as we always do. So Cicero is pretty confident, and all he's going to do is have to sit there and wait for these losers to come down from the hills, and then he'll pick them all off. But Cicero doesn't know about God's involvement in this. He probably thinks that Yahweh, this God that the Israelites worship, is a bit of a loser as well. Because after all, he hasn't been really very much used to these people over the last while because he's been in complete control. So while he's all lined up there in the valley, here, dear, doesn't it begin to rain? Now when I say rain, I mean rain. I mean rain like we haven't seen here and they hadn't seen maybe for a very, very long time. So much rain that the plain becomes a flood. So much rain that the Kishon River becomes a torrent. So much rain that chariots are absolutely useless. They just stick in the mud. Iron's great, but it's pretty heavy. And when you've got 900 iron chariots in a flooded plain, you aren't going anywhere. And as the rain comes down, as the chariot, and if you think I'm making this bit up, I'm not. It's actually in chapter 5. That's why you can't find it in chapter 4. As the rain comes down and the chariots get stuck, Barak and the boys pour out of the hills. They descend on Sisera's army and they just make toast of them. The whole army disappears. Now, Sisera, whose chariot is now useless to him, decides that he needs to get out of there. So he leaves the chariot behind and he starts running. And the interesting thing, because he's not stupid, this guy, the interesting thing is he starts running north. Now his home is over here, which is where lots of his men run, because the Israelites, they come down from Mount Tabor, they come down through the valley and they chase them right over to his home and they wipe out the army. But he's smart, he legs it up north. Why does he leg it up north? Because he's got a friend up there. A man called Heber, a Kenite, who's been working for him. So he runs to his friend's house, well, tent actually. And when he gets to his friend's tent, there's his friend's wife waiting, Jael. And Jael invites him in. He must have looked a pretty picture and a bit of a sight at that stage. And she invites him in and she gives him plenty to eat and she makes him welcome And she puts a blanket over him so that he can rest. And he says to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if anybody comes and asks, is there anybody inside here? Just say, no, there's not. And I suspect she probably went out and stood outside the tent for a little while. But Jael, Heber's wife, was a very interesting woman. Because what she actually does is, when he's asleep, this is the gory bit. There's always a gory bit in the judges. When, she's, when he's asleep, she takes a tent peg. Now, tent peg is probably something 
about this law, right? So she must be quite a woman. She takes a tent peg and she takes a hammer and she puts it on Sisera's head there. And she welts it. And she basically stakes him to the ground through his head. And Sisera, not surprisingly, is dead. And the glory has gone to a woman. Because she's the one that got the commander. And what's more, something very interesting is going on here. Because the Kenites, who would have been considered traitors and lumbies because they were working with Sisera uh, and Jabin the king, are now embraced again as heroes amongst the people of Israel. And so we have a story which is wonderful because when Barak arrives at the tent, he probably thought, I know where he'll go. He'll go uh, to Haban's house or tent. And he arrives there and his wife, Jael, brings him in and says, here's the man you're looking for. Sleeping like a baby. Well, actually, as dead as anything. And Israel has peace. And God delivers Israel out of the hand of the oppressor. What are we to make of this story? Well, some of these stories, people spend a long time trying to work out what they're about. And even this story, people spend a long time trying to work out what it's all about and all the rest of it. But actually, I think the answer is in Judges chapter 5, which is known as the Song of Deborah and Barak. You might like to look at that. You'll find it on page 246, because I think the story, the song gives us the meaning of the story and tells us what's in. Now, I know that this morning Ken Smith offered to play the guitar if I would sing the song. But as we don't have a tune, we'll not. I did think of Bold Sir Robin as a possible, or Brave Sir Robin, but I decided not to go that way, Ken. So I'm not going to sing it for you, but I want us to read most of it so that we'll get an understanding of what it's actually about. So what is this story telling us? What's it about? Look at the first verses. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. What is this about? It's about what happens when leaders lead. Besides Deborah, Israel seems to have been devoid of spiritual and political leadership for quite some time. Once Ehud and Shamgar were gone, there was no one to take their place, it appears. They had brought peace and prosperity, but prosperity had bred pride, and pride led to apostasy. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, well, he's okay. But we don't hear much from him these days. That's partly because we're into other gods. We're doing very well now. We're rich enough to bring in other gods as well. And that kind of pride had crept into the people. God was being sidelined and leaders were powerless and hadn't the courage to do anything about the situation, either the spiritual situation or the political situation that they found themselves in. And this song tells us that committed, trusting leadership makes a difference. And that's one of the things that stands out. So although Barak was told, you're not going to get the glory for this, at least Barak was willing to take God at his word through Deborah, and together they were willing to go and marshal the people and provide the leadership that was needed and stand back and let God do his bit. And that's what this song is saying to us. That this is about the wonderful things that can happen when leaders have the courage to lead. 
The Bible has a great deal to say about leaders. The Apostle Paul had a great deal to say about it. For example, uh, in Acts chapter 20, in one of his journeys, he's meeting with the elders, the leaders of a church in Ephesus. And he calls them together. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. So be on your guard. And Paul says it's important that leaders take responsibility to lead in the sense of shepherding, in the sense of being on guard, in the sense of watching out for people. And Israel's leadership had lost its sense of purpose. It had abandoned its role other than Deborah. And it's little wonder that the people religiously and politically started to go to the dogs. When Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says to Timothy, Timothy, remember this, as a leader, remember this, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Now, sometimes leadership can be a problem. It was a problem here at this time in Israel because it had abandoned its responsibilities. It can be a problem sometimes because it can be autocratic. It can be dictatorial. It can weigh on top of people and control people. And that's not the kind of leadership that Paul was interested in or Peter was interested in. Because when Peter writes about this to elders in the churches that he's writing to, he says in 1 Peter 5, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And what we see happening in Judges chapter 4 in the story of Deborah and Barak is that when leaders were willing to take God at his word and fulfill the task that God had called them to do, things began to happen. And that's why the song starts, when the princes in Israel take the lead, praise the Lord. It's a refrain we'll find as we go through the rest of this song. The second thing that really strikes me about this is, that when the people give themselves willingly, praise the Lord. Israel probably had left far too much to the leaders, like Ehud and Shamgar. They probably decided that, well, they're with us. What do we need to worry about? They'll look after everything. They'll sort it all out. They're the spiritual ones. They're the ones who have the line to God We'll leave it to them. And when they failed, the people failed. Because the people had abrogated their own responsibility. And it was a recurring problem. It happened with Moses. happened with David. happens loads of times. And it continues to happen. But God had made a covenant, not with a couple of leaders. God had made a covenant with his people, a nation. The leaders were a gift to them. But they were not an excuse to fail to walk faithfully before God and keep his covenant. And Deborah and Barak blessed the Lord that the people willingly offered themselves. Literally, physically, put their lives on the line in response to God's call. And the same thing I think is true for the church. The church is not about leaders. Leaders are a gift to the church, but they're not an excuse 
for the church, you and me, to abrogate our responsibility. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And to each, the Spirit has given gifts for the common good. To one given through the Spirit, there's a message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith. To another, gifts of healing. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of languages. To still another, the interpretation of those languages. These are all the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. The work of being Christians, the work of witnessing to God and being God's people is a work for all of God's people. And Deborah and Barak not only bless God for leaders who were willing to lead, but for people who were willing to give themselves to the purposes of God and to follow God. Peter uses the same kinds of images when he talks to Christians. He says, plenty to say to leaders, but he says to them, listen, as you, all of you, All of us come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, we also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not the pastor, it's not the minister, it's not the elders who offer the spiritual sacrifices. It's you and me as part of what it means to be this temple of praise. You are a chosen people, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Barak and Deborah start to sing this song. And the highlight for them is, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. And the same is true in churches. When leaders are willing to lead, And when the people offer themselves willingly to the service of God, praise the Lord. Things can be different. And that's the third thing I would say about this, because this is what the song seems to to suggest. That when there is a fresh vision of God, oh my, anything is possible. Look at what it says in the rest of this song. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook and the heavens poured. The clouds poured down like water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. They've recovered something of their understanding of the greatness and the glory of God. This is a a song that's reflecting now on things that happened many years previously, things that happened in Moses' time, things that happened in Joshua's time, when God was at work, when God moved and things happened. And they have a fresh sense of that. And that's why they are able as leaders and people to give themselves to the purposes of God. How that vision was lost... How Israel had become terrorized before Sisera and his army until they got this fresh vision and a new sense of who God really was. And so it says in verse 10, the verses 5 to 10 are the bits that I filled in from the story earlier on. But from verse 10 on it says, you who ride on white donkeys, you rich people, you merchants, you sitting on saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his warriors in Israel. 
And what is the reason for all this joy? Verse 13. Then the men who were left came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came to me with the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machar, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. The people were motivated. The leaders were leading. The people were willing. They had a fresh vision of God and all the glory, the the wonderful things he had done for his people before. And now they have something to sing about. And that reminds me. It reminds me of things like Hebrews 12, which says to us as Christians, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, including people like Barak, who get a mention in Hebrews, let's throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Be like the people of Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali who got behind Deborah and Barak and were willing to go to Mount Tabor and willing to descend on the armies of Sisera because they had a new vision of who God was. When leaders lead, when people give themselves willingly to the service of God, when together they share a fresh vision of God, oh my goodness, Anything can happen. But not everyone got involved. Well, that's the story of the church as well, isn't it? Look what it says in verse 15. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan... Why did he linger by the ships on the coast? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. So they didn't all get involved. But lots of them saw the vision. And lots of them got involved. But for those that did, oh my goodness, what an inspiration. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the heights of the field. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought. At Tanaka, by the waters of Megiddo, but they carried off no silver, no plunder. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. Curse Meros, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. So not everybody got involved, but what an inspiration from those who did. And that woman, Jael, well, most blessed of women be Jael. The wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water. She gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank. There he fell. Dead. And through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? 
And the wisest of her ladies answered her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A womb or two for each man, a bit of rape. Colourful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colourful garments, embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this plunder. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. When leaders lead, when the people of God give themselves willingly to the service of God, when together they share a fresh vision of God, everything can change. And a special people, a fearless people like Deborah and Jael, appear to inspire and lead the people and render the enemy powerless. May it ever be so here in Windsor. Amen.